ora, I'm Erica Wilkinson, New Zealand's Acting Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Every episode, we talk about work being done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Kia ora, ko Erica Wilkinson tēnei. He kona i purangi tēnei e pā ana ki ngā Sounds of Science. Today's guest has over 30 years' experience working with and studying marine mammals. Welcome, Anton. It's great to have you on the show. Kia ora, Erika. Ko Anton van Helden tōku ingoa. My name is Anton, and I work for the Department of Conservation. Kia ora. And tell me a bit about your role at DOC. So I'm the science advisor in the marine species team assigned to looking after Maui and Hector's dolphins. Fantastic. And how are the Maui and Hector's dolphins at the moment? Well, it's all a bit variable. We've got uh, one of the most critically endangered small dolphins on the planet in the form of uh, the subspecies, which is Maui dolphins. And we have Hector's dolphin, which, uh, although on the surface may look to be thriving at some 15,000 animals, is split up into a whole bunch of little subpopulations, which are doing better or worse, depending on where they are. Really? And, And you were just telling me that you're working on an abundance survey. We will be next year in the second year of our uh, genetic mark recapture abundance survey to create an estimate on the population of Maui dolphins. So this has been running every five years and each survey, uh, because it's a mark recapture, that is we capture information in the first year and compare that to information in the second year to be able to derive an estimate. So they have two years every five years. So we're in our third lot uh, third round of those, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, and that means that by the end of next year, we will have a new estimate for the Maui dolphin population. Currently, we're working on the basis of there being 63 Maui dolphins over the age of one, give or take. Right. Wow. And and what brought you there? How did you get started in this field? So uh, I was interested in whales and dolphins from, uh, I'm going to say, the age of two. I have a memorable event when uh, crossing the uh, the Cook Strait on the Inter-Island Ferry, or as it was then the uh, the Picton Ferry, yeah. um, known as Aramoana. So I was crossing on the Aramoana with my mum. It was a very rough crossing, and I was a bit green around the gills, and my mum took me outside to get a breath of fresh air, and there in the waves were a bunch of dolphins leaping about as if bad weather didn't mean anything to them, and so I was pretty much hooked from that point on. And on television, of course, there was Jacques Cousteau, who was an inspiration to um, to so many of us. Yeah. Um, we all had our favourite phrases, and, you know, and so I imagined that at some point in my life, you know, that I would be... With a, the red hat. I, yeah, with my red beanie. In fact, I'm working on a, a... I'm also an illustrator, so I'm working on a little story um, uh, called uh, Shark Cousteau, which is uh, about a, a great white shark who wears a little red beanie and wears glasses um, after oh, <laughs> that <I love> childhood <laughs> hero. Um so those are those are things that I want to do is to uh, come up with silly things to convey stories about our natural world. So that's part of who I am. That's fantastic. I can't wait to read the or to, to see the book when it comes out. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. So there was a list of things that you wanted to be when you grew up. I had a list when I was about four of things that I wanted to be. Certainly the top four was uh, to be a whale scientist, to be a cartoonist, to be a magician and to be a chef. 
And uh, the chef bit is the only one I haven't really done, well, got paid to do. <laughs> I feel like um, when when I grew up, I wanted to do either musical theatre or working with animals. And I've somehow found something that kind of lets me do them both, but ask me not to sing all the time. Um, but what I was thinking was you've got very separate paths, like magician and working at dog. Can you tell me about your other career? <laughs> well, I think that all of these things knit together in some ways, right? Because they're all ways for us to interact with our with our world and interact with other people. They all involve uh, story, storytelling and inquiry. We investigate our world in all sorts of different ways. And so learning about magic and how people react and respond to magic is also an inquiry into their psychology and how they interface with with what with their perceptions of reality. In a similar way, when we look at the marine environment for example, mm. people don't have a direct understanding of how how whales work or their place in the marine environment. So we're in a business of having to interpret that for them. Mm. and to inquire of that so that we can provide information in a way that not only makes sense, but that encourages them to to care, uh, to care about mm. it. Yeah. And ultimately, that's, uh, that's a big chunk of what we have to do, is to how, how to get people to care. And that brings me back probably to one of my f- greatest influences as a little kid was be going along to, I think I was three, we went to the Muratai School Fair and in the Muratai School Hall they showed a film of uh, the Lorax. And, you know, mm. that pretty much entrenched in me, unless someone cares a whole awful lot, nothing's going to change. It's not. There's something tantalizing and magical about working with animals that you almost never see, right? So we have the perception of whales, mm-hmm. but we also have uh, and dolphins, right? Dolphins are small-toothed whales, just in case you you get you stumble over that kind of little taxonomic problem. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we engage with these things. We try and understand them and interpret how they live in the ocean so that we can do something about protecting them. But we're having to infer a lot from pretty scant little pieces of information. So much of what we know is just gleaned from a a dead animal washed up on a beach. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, I had high and mighty ideals of being on the front of a boat wearing a red beanie and, you know, ta-da, there are the whales and that's what it was all going to be about. But my real love for whales developed more so when I uh, started working at the National Museum when I was uh, 18. Mm -hmm. So you must have some sort of magic meets doc kind of kind of stories do they do they ever I guess I have magic meets conservation stories right and magic meets whale stories um I have a colleague uh, at MPI who loves Bayesian statistics and I perform every week at the the Green Man pub and uh, so they came along to see me perform and you know, I'm no Bayesian statistician and this character you know loves loves all that detail and loves how all that works and for me that's kind of magical um, but anyway at the at the pub there I get to perform magic for him and it was one of those joys of being able to at the end of the day so he's going how is that how is that even possible? It's just maths. It's just maths, which of course it wasn't, but that we don't need to tell him that. <laughs> but it's magic. Yeah, obviously. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. But uh, the idea that you could, <laughs> we could play that little uh, game was, was, kind, of, was kind of pleasing. Um, and, and you must have 
a million stories about your oddest things that you've had to do. Oh, yeah. So over the years, I've collected a number of whale skeletons uh, for the museum, um, and that's brought me into some pretty unusual situations, uh, not least of all dealing with uh, rotting carcasses, right? Um, it's not everybody's cup of tea. I'd never say it should be anybody's cup of tea, quite <laughs> frankly. But um, on, memorably, my first sperm whale that we uh, that I cut up with uh, Romari Stewart, we were down on the west coast of uh, at Hector, on the west coast of the South Island. Ultimately, the, we never got the specimen for the museum. So that's a whole other story. But um, we had spent... Uh, we arrived, uh, it was one of those things where we'd been told, oh, yes, there's accommodation on site, which turned out to be a tent with no ground sheet on a beach. Um, <laughs> so we didn't have a lot of facilities going going for us. But anyway, we were we were into cutting up this whale with the with the tools that we had. This was for Ramari and myself. This was our first whale, our first sperm whale that we'd ever cut up. Wow. And so we were, we had set with the challenge, first of all, of uh, removing the jawbone. Um, now, there's a lot of public attention when there is a jawbone, a sperm whale, particularly a, a large male. This was a 15.3 metre male sperm whale, and they have large teeth. And so when things have large teeth, they attract a lot of attention. Anyway, it took us the best part of a day to, uh, to to remove that jaw with the knowledge we had at the time. Um, now with some wonderful other dock staff and things, I think the record is four minutes for removing a jawbone. I hope there's impressive. a competition for that. I, I seriously hope there's not. I, I think people just need to be really cautious about what they do. It's more about doing it right than doing it quick. Um, but, the, but anyway, it took us a... By the end of it, we were pretty exhausted. It was uh, what we call a dry whale. That's where the, all the uh, the blubber, uh, a lot of the oil has gone from it. It's very fibrous, uh, just really a lot of connective tissue. So it's quite hard to cut through. And um, anyway, the jaw had gone and so had most of the crowds. But by the morning of day two, we faced this enormously bloated beast on the beach. And we knew that if we were going to progress anything at all, we would have to... Uh, essentially off-gas the animal. That is that we would have to cut along the belly of the beast and mm. uh, take it as it comes. Well, the joy of this is that there was a local videographer who um, set up his tripod downwind from where we were and was filming the whole event. So somewhere out there, there is video of this. Um, but Ramari and I were cutting along the belly of the beast and it, those fibres are tearing and snapping mm. and and little farty noises are coming out as this, and we it's we can feel it's you go, it's gonna go, it's gonna go. And Ramari and I looked at each other and went, Yeah, she's gonna blow. We we said, nip it and run, right? So we nicked the thing and took off. And and the it erupted. It was this an audible boom as the the animal exploded there and then slowly drifted downwind towards where the videographer was, who then grabbed his mouth with one hand and his tripod with the other and disappeared into the dunes. And we never saw him again. We heard him for a little while, but we didn't uh, but we didn't see him again. But anyway, that was our that's uh, that's learning on the job. So you've spent a bit of time in the subantarctics. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, my first experience of going to the Subantarctic was in 1995. We were all gunning to go, and we went down on this German tour boat. So that's one of these nice, you know, associations with tourism that they will take dock staff or or scientists uh, on down to these that's these handy. remote places, mm. right? And that in exchange, I guess, the people get to go ashore or to you know have uh, have a look around. So. 
we get on board and it's just it's, it's exquisite. You know, you imagine we sit down for dinner the first night and there's cutlery as far as your arms could reach on either side and everything was just amazing. And the next morning at breakfast there were pastries and it was about as high end as I had ever experienced in my life. And and coming from the the tent on the beach as well, you know? Uh, it's, yeah, it's so there's, there, are real, there are real contrasts in this job. You've got to take them as they come. Well... <laughs> Talking about takers that come, the next night we got stuck in a storm south. So we left from um, from Littleton and we the next night we were south of Stewart Island and we got caught in a horrendous storm. I think it was like Beaufort 12 for 12 hours or something. 75 knot winds, 14 metre seas, and we were rolling it over 50 degrees. So it was pretty dreadful and a real experience for me. I'd never really been out, you know, on the out to sea at all. <laughs> and um, anyway, my, my cabin mate, Rob Matlin, who's sadly no longer with us, gave me the nickname the Barking Seal after that experience. The, uh, the interesting thing is we had a, there was a Danish captain and every time we were going to roll, he was obviously aware that this was going to happen. He would mm-hmm. come over the intercom going, hold on! Hold on. And so all through the night we had this and not a single thing was uh, bolted down in the cabin. So the beds were sliding and everything. We were holding on to, you know, I was holding on to a corner of the mattress. Meanwhile, Rob Matlin was trying to keep me um, cheerful by zipping backwards and forwards across the floor um, on his <laughs> on his bum, just, just sliding backwards and forwards. But halfway through the night, you go, this is just treacherous, treacherous time. Right? We, hear, we hear this, the Danish captain come and goes, is there a dentist on board? <laughs> and you go, oh, no. We had this vision of them, you know, sending out one of these workers out to, you know, finally paint one of the, <laughs> something on the outside of the boat or something. But anyway, we know, you know, we're going, to, they're going down to Antarctica. Yes, we were being dropped off en route, but they're going down to Antarctica and someone's got smashed teeth. Ooh. This is just too, was too hard to bear. But as a consequence of the storm, uh, they decided they'd taken too much time. And so they didn't drop us off at Enderby Island where we were supposed to be dropped off. So um, perhaps in, in a roundabout way, with some good fortune, I was a castaway on Campbell Island. Oh, my god! So they dropped us off at Campbell Island, which thankfully it was the last year there was a manned weather station at Campbell Island. So we had somewhere to be. And uh, a character called Jerry Clark, who had a little boat called the Totorori, was um, had been uh, with a little crew counting birds around the Auckland Islands, and he dropped his crew at Enderby, where we were supposed to be, and soloed down to pick us up in what was, uh, I don't know, six-and-a-half-metre bilge-keeler yacht. So um, it's the one time in my life seeing this little boat come up the harbour where I thought, I don't want to go out in that. I've just been out in an enormous boat, you know. <laughs> But that's the, but that's the thing. But that took us uh, that took me to the sub ants for the first time. Wow, what an experience! I'm I'm desperate to know what the dental issue was, but I guess I, we never found out. No, no, we don't know. Yeah, unresolved <laughs> in my mind too. <laughs> yeah. So you work with dolphins a lot. You must deal with the um, toxoplasmosis situation. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so that's a really interesting and complex issue, right? Because uh, here we have uh, hectares of Maui dolphins that are dying mm. from a disease which really is only present in New Zealand because of cats. Just boggles right. the mind. It, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. And so it's to, to go to somebody and say, you know, the dolphins are dying because of cats, 
it's just too big a jump for mm. people to, can't to understand. It. But mm. we need to understand that it's a parasite, right? Cats aren't going out killing dolphins. There's nothing willful about it on the part of the cat. Um, but the cats carry this parasite called Toxoplasma gondii, mm-hmm. and it only replicates sexually in the guts of cats. Cats are its definitive host, sure. which means that in the cats, in the cat's gut, they reproduce by create, by making lots of uh, oocysts or eggs, eggs, if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And these are distributed out into the wild through the cat's feces mm-hmm. and from there into waterways, into soil, into other, and ultimately into the marine environment where it can get into the dolphin. So that's a that's an interesting pathway, right? Mm, it is. So do the eggs have to stay active and during that path? So the amazing thing about this, this is probably has been described as the one of the most successful parasites on the planet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not so, a good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'd hope it would be the most fragile, yeah. most easily extinguished. No, it's the most successful parasite on the planet. And that these oocysts can persist in not just in fresh water or in soil, but in mar- in salt water in mar- the marine environment for at least a year, maybe longer. So, and in soil for, you know, at least for a couple of years. So, you know, this is a, it's a challenging, challenging thing for us to manage, Mm -hmm. right? Because effectively it's a sort of diffuse pollution problem. I see. And so um, what's, what's the answer? I mean, what do we need to tell cat owners or? Firstly, that let's face it, it's not the cats. No. It's the parasite. You know, so we're managing the parasite. Mm-hmm. But to manage the parasite, we have to consider how we manage cats. We have, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the very limited ways in which we can uh, affect uh, change around mm-hmm. cats. And there's obviously a lot of, uh, has been historic political. She's a contentious uh, issue. <laughs> issues around, uh, around cat management. Yeah. So, you know, there's a certain degree, if we know that if you keep your cat inside, if you keep your cat contained and you feed it um, dry cat food, that it's not going out and eating pest populations of mm-hmm. rats and mice or birds that can also carry, because toxoplasma can get into any warm-blooded creature, right? And the thing, I mean, here's the, the joyous thing. For example, it does creates behavioural change in mice so that when they get the toxoplasma, it makes them less, uh, it makes them, uh, less risk-averse and seek out cat urine smell. So mice then willfully wander and, and look out for their predator. Oh, my so, God. So eat me, eat me, you know. So we've got to, there's a whole lot of different parts of this equation that somehow we need to uh, bring together to manage. Mm-hmm. So... If we say, you know, what can we do around managing cats? That's mm. part of the issue. You know, we have feral cat populations that homeowners can do very little about, but we have some responsibility for on, on, on public conservation, on land. Public conservation mm-hmm. land. Um that uh to uh, that um, also that councils have some responsibility for, but also we have the issue of it getting into our waterways. Mm. So, you know, for instance, if you're at home, you don't want to flush your cat's poos down the loo sure. because that's an instant pathway into um, into the water system, right? Mm. Well, it's not necessarily going to get to the dolphin because yeah. there's all sorts of other things that we can possibly do along the way, mm-hmm. like uh, riparian planting and other things that can that could affect change. But yeah. 
the sad thing, uh, <laughs> another challenge, is that, uh, you know, wastewater, you know, so stormwater is one thing, but wastewater is another, is that there is currently no mechanism that will kill the oocyst. So all the things that we do to our sewage, to, um, you know, whether yeah. it be UV, light or chlorination, doesn't affect the oasis one jot. So this is a They're really so powerful. Re- oh yeah, this is a really oh, gnarly little thing, no. right? And the point is that uh, w- one cat, you know, we call it a shedding event. So that, and it's most likely that when they're a kitten, they get infected by the parasite, and then uh, they mm. it reproduces in the gut of the cat, and it uh, releases all these oocysts into the environment. And a single cat can produce. Uh, apparently, one cat was uh, recorded producing a billion oocysts. It takes one oocyst to infect a dolphin. Oh, right? gosh. So, right. But at the moment, one of our biggest problems is mm. that we don't understand uh, these pathways uh, well enough right? mm-hmm. or how to, um, you know, even it's challenging to measure the amount of uh, toxo in a, in a given body of water, right? Mm. So uh, we know that there are things that we could do that are likely to have some benefit to, uh, to the dolphins, right. Right? but we can't expressly um, show that it will have a benefit. For example, the population of Maui dolphin is so small that even if you did make, uh, you were making positive benefit, mm-hmm. seeing it and reflected in the, an increasing dolphin population would be hard to see over any, uh, well, you know, small measurable period of time. And they only breed every two to four years as well, don't they? Or yeah, something, something like something that. Along so it's a long like, game. Yeah, yeah, this okay. is a, it's a real long game thing. But we have to act quickly because mm-hmm. we need to reduce the risk. Okay, so it's so it's a more of a research side at the moment and, and needing to act quickly. But are there um are there ways that we're getting better at marine mammal help? Are we, um, is technology changing the game at all? You know, I look at what we've achieved in the recent TMP and, you know, we're seeing massive extensions to our um, marine mammal sanctuaries and that, you know, that's a a win. We've seen extensions to uh, fisheries protections, although that's something governed by uh, MPI. Mm -hmm. So, but in totem, that's quite something, yeah. you know. But if we look at um, making change in conservation, it's not about a silver bullet. No. You know, when I look at the toxo situation, there's not one thing that we can just go, okay. It's very easy when you're outside of that to say, you know, outside of those uh, those processes to say, all you need to do is, right? Yeah. Like, all you need to do is get rid of the cats. Mm-hmm. All you need to do is stop fishing. All you need to do is... Well, it's not an all you need to do mm. um, answer. There is no, there's no silver bullet. It's That's you right. know, it's and a lot of those things are little incremental gains that mm-hmm. make up a whole. And so, trying to work and pull together those uh, collaborations, whether it be with uh, with other government agencies or with regional councils, but also with with iwi, who have a really you know, we have a an absolute commitment to. Mm. Uh, <laughs> You know, we're, they're, we're, they're our treaty partners and that's a big part of this conversation. It's another thing to have those conversations. How do you make those things work? You know, and that's a thing that we as DOC are, you know, are working at. Mm-hmm. I, I hardly say it's a thing we've got right, but we, uh, you know, we have a, 
not just an obligation, but a real desire yeah, to, to effect to eff- mm. you know, to bring effect to the to what we say we will do. That's you know, right. we've got a really strong rhetoric around uh, you know around relationship, but uh-huh. you know you have to relate to have relationship, and it's how you build that is a you know some of those things are hard one. Yeah, and um, is that why you were removing the jaw and teeth from the the whale to? For, for Tangata Whenua? Yeah, so um, in that case, uh, we were in a situation where we were wanting to collect the entire skeleton for the museum. And mm-hmm. so, um, but those are particular taonga that have, you know, have really strong uh, value, meaning partly mm-hmm. through, because of the, the nature of the bone itself, um, that... Uh, you know, I once had this conversation, yes, you might want to collect the jawbone of a whale, but why would you want to collect the other parts? But I've come to understand that, you know, when it comes to somebody's uh, rights or v- vision of what they want to do with their animal, that's it's not my call, right? Um, you know, you can equally carve pumice as you can carve, um, you know, beautiful, dense uh, whalebone found mm-hmm. pretty much only in the jawbone um, or teeth of, uh, of a sperm whale. So there's different ways to approach it but it's always around that uh, that conversation but we've collected a lot of jaw bones over the years yeah. um to um to to have those discussions and mm-hmm. to we've had a lot of talks mm-hmm. sat around had a lot of cups of tea with people to uh to really talk through what what these animals what value they you know they place in them and not just as animals mm, but in taonga. taonga as yeah. ancestors yes right so it's a very real thing mm-hmm. you know it's one thing to go and i remember having this you know great conversation you know, you have to think very carefully about whether you want to collect a whale you know what your responsibilities are to to that animal, mm-hmm. for instance, uh, talking with Manafenuiki Mohu in Golden Bay, and we wanted to collect uh, a whale, and we agreed that uh, we would collect the whole whale, right, mm-hmm. or none of it, right. Initially, so if you imagine, it's quite simple to cut the head off a small whale and collect that as frozen freight. Mm-hmm. But if you were thinking, yeah, that's my, that's my grandmother. Yeah, I don't want to do that. No, I don't mm-hmm. want to do that. I want to treat that with all the res- possible respect that I can. Yes. And that we want to retain and build that relationship so there's an ongoing relationship between the the iwi, the tangata whenua, mm-hmm. and their taonga. And that's something that I carry with me all the time. So when I, when I think of the ideas of mana taonga, what it meant for me mm-hmm. in terms of building that, an ongoing relationship with the tangata whenua, mm-hmm. it really encapsulates this, this idea of, uh, that we talk about within DOC and elsewhere, obviously, but as faka uh, fanaunatanga, which mm. is that we we are coming together, you know, we are building an ongoing relationship to yes. build for our for a greater purpose mm. and um, building it together and building it yeah. together. We can't do it on our own. No, right? There's no way that DOC can achieve what it needs to do on its own. Those relationships are fundamental. Absolutely. So over 80 years, the temperature has been rising um, in alpine areas. Rats and mice don't get limited by the same temperature restrictions and they are moving up. So that's bad news for our alpine birds. But what do we know about the potential impact of climate change on marine mammals? This is an issue which we are we are grappling with and mm-hmm. we will continue to grapple with for some time we've seen uh, these hot water events if you like uh, you know with 
we get incursions of very warm water uh, coming into an area and that can change the distribution and upset the apple cart for all sorts of things. So um, that was notable off the coast of Taranaki with um, the blue whale mm. research that was going on there. And let's bear in mind that that's the same, essentially the same habitat that Maui dolphin live in, mm. right? Um, but there are processes in the ocean which are driven by ocean currents which are dependent on climate. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we look at the, the history of whales, it's tied in closely with changes in climate. But now we're getting it happening at a radical pace, right? The yeah. evolution of whales is tied to the, the opening up of the southern oceans, the changes um, in uh, uh, seasonal abundance of of krill, mm. and you know, at the moment we see, you know, we're seeing expansion of sea ice, but we'll see a reduction in sea ice. That's what um, climate scientists tell us, mm. and with that, you'll see a re reduction in areas where krill can breed because they lay their eggs on the bottom of the sea ice. But they could really upset the balance for uh, for large migrating whales that are dependent on uh, that uh, tremendous seasonal abundance. But it can also, you know, there may be changes to um, to current systems and mm -hmm. uh, upwelling areas and so loss of productivity in those areas, loss uh, not just um, and not just uh, temperature but also ocean acidification where you may get changes in how prey develop, right? So um, soft-bodied organisms, even squid that have these little things called statoliths um, that are seem to be altered by changes in uh, temperature and chemistry. And that changes how they orient themselves in the water column. And that may impact on squid populations that enormous numbers of species are dependent on. Mm. Um, that we may see, you know, this idea that animals can just move to where it's, you know, marine mammals are big, they can move to wherever there's food, but they mm. are going to try and be where um, it's viable for them to be. But that may also expose them to other risks. The best thing we can do is try and do what we can to, to stop anthropogenic climate change. Our role really is to mitigate, you know, other impacts on their environment. The, the more we can reduce the risks from uh, man-made activities on these animals, the better chance they have of being able to mm. uh, handle these sorts of events. What's something about your work that you wish everyone knew? What what can we at home do to um, to help marine mammals? If people could understand that it's a really complex job, <laughs> that we all have to, if we can contribute positively towards it. There's yeah. a lot of negativity um, sure. that makes the job harder, to mm -hmm. be fair. And, um yeah, I don't know what the <laughs> quite how to resolve that, but I do know that it's quite different being inside government to being outside of it. Sure. If there are carcasses that come ashore washed up on the beach, can we find out about them mm. in enough time for them to be in a fresh enough state for us to be able to do necropsies and to really determine cause of death? Right. And as sad and as horrible as that may sound, so necessary. As I said before, it's one of the only opportunities we have to look at that. Absolutely. So, if there are animals dying and coming up on the beach, we need to be able to find them as quickly as we can. So Absolutely. if people are vigilant um, around their pieces of coastline, mm -hmm. but also not not just dead animals, but also sightings. For, mm. uh, for example, on the east coast of the North Island, we get sporadic sightings of um Hector's dolphins. For instance, Doc has an app, a sightings app, for Hector's and Maui's dolphins. And so oh. you can use that 
and use and, it and, rep- and report right and when we get reports of these animals that allows us to take other management decisions mm-hmm. okay and and so i've got the app i've downloaded it and then what am i looking for then you're looking for a little Mickey Mouse fin swimming past you, right? <laughs> so a Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse shaped dorsal fin is Mickey Mouse. That's not quite uh, right. Mickey Mouse eared shaped yeah. dorsal fin. Not the whole thing. Not the whole animal. <laughs> no, no, not the whole mouse. That would be really odd. No, but the, it's we tend to say that it's got a rounded dorsal fin. But I think lots of people look at a dolphin fin and go, it's rounded, right? But they're looking at just the leading edge. Yeah, comparatively talking, to a shark, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah but if we're talking about the whole shape of the of the the dorsal fin, it's mm-hmm. like a little Mickey Mouse ear. Okay. Right? Proper little round dorsal fin. And, and that's, that's both Maui and Hector's. Yeah. Anyone would struggle to determine whether uh, it's a Hector's or a Maui's dolphin based on looking at an animal in the wild. We are looking at genetic differences primarily to determine whether it's a Maui dolphin or not. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today, Anton. I've learned so much and I feel, yeah, this is very cool. Thank you. You are most welcome. That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, show us some love with a five-star rating. The Doc Sounds of Science podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now, never miss an episode.